Thanks for tuning in, everyone, to Doth Protest Too Much. This is episode, I think this is our 50th or our 60th. Uh, it's an anniversary episode. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll find out for sure, and I'll put a correction in the show notes or in the intro or something. But uh, this is kind of an episode James and I just uh, scheduled, planned to have. Um, a lot of it's going to be over something he recently wrote um, for EFAC. And I'm excited in, in soon time to hear about um, his relationship with EFAC. Of course, for our listeners, EFAC, um, which stands for Evangelical Fellowship in the Anglican Communion, has been brought up on this show, on this podcast before. Um, you know, just Zach Neubauer, who's the president of EFAC USA, has been on the podcast three times. Um, and so... Yeah, uh, it's an organization James and I are both involved with, and um, we'll talk about that and some other things, but just to catch up, because uh, I think it's been a month or so since we've you've been on the show, James. I mean, we've only had an episode or two since then, but how, how have things been with you? Life is uh, life of its, is its normal shade of busy during Lent. Um, you know, uh, I remember being a layperson and thinking that, you know, Lent was just so important to me because it was a time to slow down and really focus on the things that mattered. And now that I've been in ordained ministry for seven years, it's because the church is like a duck on the water mm -hmm. uh, during Lent. You know, things on the out on the outside look nice and calm and clear and, and quiet. And and yet um, underneath the water, you're paddling full blast. And it's the clergy that generally are doing the paddling in that regard. So, um, yeah, it's it's been it's been super busy, but but good. Um, and uh, we had about. I guess probably about a month and a half worth of sickness in our house that's recently left thanks be to god so yeah hopefully hopefully that stays on the up and up yeah it's like everyone gets one person gets sick then a week later another person gets <laughs> running its course right uh, it's different when you're single or just a couple <laughs> uh, yeah less hostile so, well, i mean that has its own issues to be sure uh you can yeah. still get still get sick by somebody Right, just just running the course throughout all the different bodies under the roof. True enough. Uh, not to uh, reduce human beings to bodies, but um, I, you know, I've heard that in some of our. Maybe I'll cut this out in our post show, but <laughs> some of our like culture, us cultural language referring to humans as bodies or something like that. It's just kind of soulless, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know if you've heard that anywhere. Maybe I'll. Oh, cut yeah. No, I mean. Uh... <laughs> Rachel and I talk about this all the time. Um, just the the idea of am I doing something in my body or am I just doing something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like uh um and, and there is this obsession, especially in the Episcopal Church, with talking about incarnation and um not the incarnation of Jesus, but like you being incarnate. Um embodiment is another word that tends to be thrown around at least it was at vts i can't speak for vexley seabury but 
Oh, embodiment. Yeah. Well, and the whole thing about embodied worship and stuff like that, that all sounds kind of like gobbledygooky stuff to me, to be honest. I know people. Um, <laughs> uh, Duh, you're embodied. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, uh, yes. Uh, and uh, I can relate Lent. Uh, I like the, the the duck on the water analogy you give. Um, it's gotten busier, too, on, on my end with the parish life. Um it's been a very good busy. It hasn't seemed um, super chaotic or super disorderly. Um, it's it seems it it really feels like where um, where we are supposed to be in the in parish life as far as um, the the things we do during Lent. We're doing a Lenten study, Lenten study slash reflection sessions on Wednesday evenings uh, over a, a book by Dane Ortland called um, which I, I believe I I knew the author James but I believe you were the first person I really met that really had read him mm -hmm. um, but he writes this very short book called how does God change us and we're using it as our Lenten book and um, we're, we're like putting the, we're running the audio book. Uh, one of our parishioners has it on audio on, on, um, what's that app called audible. audible. And we just play it through the big speaker while everyone kind of follows along. We do it. We do two chapters a week. So we kind of listen to the chapter and people can follow along in their own copy if they like. And then we pause and discuss and we have a good dinner before. And since we're in Louisiana, our Lenten dinner is not Lenten. Um, so, <laughs> so those nice. have been good um and it's uh great turnout too i feel like we've had like half of the congregation there on these wednesday nights um which is you know, great big number i was thinking it was gonna be like 15 people maybe but no it's been a big big group so yeah that's been that's been um this week was a big week we had a funeral of uh one of my predecessors the priest who served saint michael's from 91 to 2014 which is a long time um yeah good guy he originally came from church of england um very educated clergy person uh held a phd um uh, was a was a classic evangelical um so um really great um uh wonderful service um that we had for him and um so yeah, and uh, yesterday we had a dedication. We dedic we 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 have a new building on our grounds, and uh, it's now finally complete. It'll be uh, activity will be going on there in about a week. Um, it's used to house primarily some of our recovery programs, but also we hope for it to kind of be a space for other healing organizations, civic groups and church okay. use um and it was we had uh we had a little blessing for it last i want to say little and it was, we had about 30 people come out for that uh and we did it inside it was kind of windy we did it inside the building and bishop owens be uh our former rector uh father seth and and uh and a guy mr l williams who's a local uh he, he works for the city and he came representing the mayor um but yeah he's also a uh a local minister too in, in uh, at a Baptist wow. church. And so, and the four of us each said like uh, between one to two minutes spoke, said a few brief words about the importance of outreach. Um, and it was, and then we did the blessing. It was really powerful. I mean, it's, 
you know, in, in the life of the church, as you know, James, we, we get kind of bogged down with kind of mundane or seemingly mundane office tasks and administrative things and just, oh, remembering to notify and send an email to so-and-so and yes, and stuff like that. And then, you know, we, we get on, <laughs> we get on the show and we talk theology and we, we talk about the importance of, of the theology and mission of the church but it's even with all that talk it's so easy to lose sight of um uh, the power that we preach and uh yesterday evening was just a reminder just um we we had people showed other people in in tears and like i say tears are not just over broken hearts tears are tears come from healing as well um right people that were just rejoicing that i mean god's love really does do wonders in the world and just to see that and uh you know it's it's a powerful thing so it was a good evening yeah and um today's kind of my day off i uh ran a bunch of errands you know i don't even i don't don't even know what it's gonna be like to have kids because i just i had like two errands i tried to run a day i had an (laughs) hour-long online class today and before i knew it it was 3 30 for our episode time right wait 4 30 your time <laughs> yeah 4 30 our time here, and yeah. uh and i uh, didn't even get to reviewing and taking notes I'm, I'm kind of unscripted we're both kind of on i think kind of unscripted today yeah uh, which may involve editing and it may involve great things that just the spirit at work and um i'm good with that and so <laughs> um so uh yeah uh that was my week it's been good um but I guess we can roll into what we we're going to get into. Um, yeah. And it's okay if you didn't, James, but did you have the chance to look at that Living Church article? Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, for, our list, yeah, for our listeners, um, the, we, originally this episode is going to be James and I discussing, uh, and this will still be the bulk of the episode. We're going to, to spend some time on something he wrote. He writes for EFAC now. EFAC has a blog. It's, it's called the 39 blog. Mm-hmm. 39 um, plus, yep. 39 plus um, blog, which I assume is a reference to the 39 articles. <laughs> um, yep, right. For EFAC USA. But before we get into that, um, into that article or to, to what he wrote, uh, I came across an article. Um, and this is, this is really, really crazy because like this morning I was ruminating about preaching because I have a sermon that's not as far i mean it's friday right now as we record and of course sunday being in two days and usually i have half the sermon written by now and then i kind of revisit it at about this time and right now i just haven't even started and um you know sermon writing for me looks different every week uh, i don't know james what about you i don't really have i i've tried to to make more of a system and carve out perhaps more of a discipline about it. But I just haven't had life. Hasn't, um, has gotten the best of me. What's your, yeah. how do you go about this? <laughs> Any advice? So, for me? <laughs> well, I would say, uh, sermon writing for me is, um, has morphed over time. Um, it initially was um, me writing my sermons on Saturdays. Uh, sorry, my uh, my screen froze and I don't know where. I don't know if you can still hear me or not. I can hear you perfectly fine. 
Okay. And I can see you move too. Yeah. So. So. Yeah, I, can, I mean, my screen I can is. Stop, I can good. stop my video. We don't need to look at each other. Sometimes, you know, when we stop the videos and just have sound, it goes smoother. So. Oh, that, that's fine. Yeah, but no, my computer is frozen for whatever reason. But anyways, I'll just um, I'll just start over my explanation of what I'm doing, and then if if something happens, just text me or something. If something happens, I'll give you a call. Yeah, <laughs> on the right, cell phone because sounds good. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um. But yeah, so my, my sermons, uh, sermon prep has changed for me over time. It began as a, a uh, process where I would write my sermons on Saturdays, um, and that went fine for a couple of years. And then I realized just how um, just how hard that was getting to be um, with having kids and having other responsibilities and sometimes having things that come up for church on Saturday. Um, and so that, that ended up um, shifting to Thursdays now, if I can. So I wrote my sermon yesterday um, and I try and, I try and read through the scripture, look at a couple commentaries, things like that. And then if I don't find anything particularly, um, particularly helpful or poignant for that lesson, then I'll, I'll take it in a different direction, but I, I usually try and get everything done by Thursday so that I can memorize it on Friday or Saturday and then preach it on Sunday. Um, but yeah, so that, that's, that's, that's what I do. I, I, I encourage writing it earlier if you can. Um, but, but I by no means have any judgment about it because for years I did it on Saturdays and, uh, I, I wouldn't even entertain the idea of writing earlier this Saturday to my <laughs> chagrin now. So, well, uh, what I was thinking about this morning, um, and it, it, this will be connected to both the living church article we're about to get into and your article for EFAC. Um, you know, the, the past Anglican, well, I want to say modern Anglicanism, but let's just say the Episcopal church, because this is really the, um, the, the the prime example of it in the Episcopal right. Church in recent years, and I guess maybe of the last eighty to a hundred years, uh, and this was this notion uh, definitely came with the nineteen seventy nine prayer book, uh, is that the Eucharist is the central thing of what we do in our worship, and the whole of course um, it's very common in the Episcopal Church to have the Holy Eucharist as the principal uh, service on Sundays. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and the Eucharist is basically the culmination of the liturgy. It's everything the liturgy is basically directed toward. And in a sense, I think that is correct to say. In a sense, I believe that's true. Um, in another sense, though, I think it's created a culture of kind of relegating the sermon to something being very secondary um, mm -hmm. at, at best, maybe a good illumination that may offer a good insider point about the readings that we just read aloud in the church. Um, yeah. You know, at best it's that at other times, and it's kind of led to a culture of like, it's like, well, the sermons are something, you know, just kind of have one together, 
Mm-hmm. Right. But, um, and, but also, I mean, that's, that's the Episcopal church and a lot of modern Anglicanism of more recent times, historically, the ministry of the word had a, was, was, was treated much more vitally, um, had much more of an emphasis in historic Anglicanism. Um, and of course that's tied very much to Anglicans reformational roots. And right. really it's the living church article we'll be, we'll get into in about a, in a minute, very much argues that line and also says that the word and sacrament, um, they're not distinct categories really. Right. And um, it's really though, the word is what really makes the sacrament effective. Right. Um, And we forget that. And so in my thinking is like another downside of the modern Anglican emphasis of the centrality of the Eucharist is that it it makes it, it it misleads us to think that the Eucharist uh is is what is enlivening us. Um, right. And it's not, it's the hearing of the gospel that raises us to new life. Um it's the it's that which raises us to new life and not the Eucharist. And so um um so you know it's 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 i just it was, I was again this is something i was ruminating on i'm gonna turn my screen back on so we can be yeah um just make sure so um again i was ruminating on that this morning and uh but it had a lot to do but before i be getting the living church article what are your thoughts on that well so so i have a lot of thoughts about that so um one of the things that that i remember from seminary was the number of folks who wanted to argue with me when I talked about uh, one professor who, whenever she would get in the pulpit, would never mention Jesus in any of her sermons. I heard her preach a number of times, and she would never mention Jesus in any of her sermons. And one sermon that really bugged me was that she preached a sermon on redemption and never mentioned Jesus. And I'm not trying to be pedantic here. I mean, Jesus is our redemption. (laughs) Like if you're going to preach on that theme, you, you kind of can't talk about it without Jesus. And so um, one person who was from the Anglo Catholic camp said to me, well, the rest of the liturgy preaches Jesus as our redeemer. So that makes up for it not being mentioned in the sermon. And I thought about that, and I thought, that is a woefully insignificant answer, or insufficient is what I mean, insufficient answer. Like, the the liturgy and the sacrament itself are utterly void and meaningless without the word. Um, When Christ gave uh, the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, he gave it to us by giving us the words of institution. Um, And what what he's saying is that what what I tend to refer to the Eucharist as is edible gospel. 
because when you eat it, the priest says to you some derivation of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life, or the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep you in everlasting life. I tend to use that for right too, because it is a statement of good news that this is something being given to you irrespective of your work or, or worthiness or merit, but rather this is something that you are taking into your own body that is a, a tangible reminder, an edible reminder of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's more than just that. I mean, I do believe in the real presence, but, but it is the word which affects the work. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, what's the uh, what's the Latin term for the Roman position on this? Um, ex operato, ex operatus operato. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that the work in and of itself is effectual, <clears throat> um, but it's not anything that that I am doing. I'm not using magic fingers to transform the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. It is the word that Christ has given to us, spoken through someone whom he has called and ordained to be a minister of his church, that is the thing that makes this this, uh, bread and this wine into the thing that is the body and blood of Christ in some mystical, mystical, magnificent way. Um, Mm -hmm. So... Well, going back to the um, professor you're talking about, yeah, I think um, on one end, I, I do, I can see how one can become even pedantic or legalistic with harping on, you know, the count, the 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 word count of how many times someone says Jesus, and I mean, sure. obviously, that's no measure for, um, you know, evaluating this is if someone's proclamation is really Christ rooted, but. I've also seen it where the treatment of such subject matter is redemption is the example you gave, but if someone, you know, talked on redemption or salvation or mission or anything, if uh, these can become very vague uh, categories, if uh, it is not ultimately proclaimed in light of Christ's work, mm-hmm. you know. Um, this Living Church article, so it is titled, I'll put a link in the show notes, Bibli- Bibliolatry, the Ex-Vangelical Boogeyman by guest contributor, uh, Reverend David Beadle, who I don't know if I know Reverend Beadle, do you? No, I don't. Uh-uh. He's not terribly far away. Well, he's farther away from me now than when he when I was in Shreveport, Louisiana. But he <laughs> serves at St. Mark's Cathedral. I uh, say, sorry, St. Matthew's Cathedral, Freudian slip. I was at St. Mark's Cathedral in Shreveport, <laughs> and he went to White Wycliffe. So it, it it where he got his MDiv. So he's he's definitely um, of I would perhaps say the more Anglican evangelical stripe, but he, I guess, um, and, and of course the title is called Bibliolatry. I guess we need to break down the title. Bibliolatry, I guess, is often a term given for people who um, have uh, the, the way of going about the Bible that 
reads it very woodenly and sometimes or often, I guess, in isolated passages, um, disconnected from other passages. So it fails to read the Bible in unity and I guess more conservative stripes of especially American evangelical Christianity and um, have been accused of, of this and they've been accused of being another you know, big buzzword fundamentalist. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess that's what bibliolatry is, is re- refers to. And, and I think it's a real, I think it's a real thing. It's a real phenomenon, but I just, it's like the word fundamentalist. People throw accuse others or charge others of, of being that or doing that. And that, that it may be unfair. It may, it may not always be the case that that's what it is, but anyways. And then the other words in the article title are the ex-vangelical boogeyman so i I think this um what he's indicating in the title is that um we like i said we um we we, uh basically um will will have like a image in our heads of like the ultimate foe i guess of uh (laughs) that may or may not be an actual thing but um right but ex-evangelical, right. of course, that's another, sounds like evangelical. That word, of course, refers, that's a more recent term I see, think I've seen coined, especially on social media, it refers to kind of refugees, people that leave the evangelical, well, you know, especially popular American evangelical Christianity and may find themselves in perhaps something like the Anglican church. Um, right. Um, because of the, some of, some of the excesses you see in, in American evangelical. So that, that's the title just to kind of give it a, explanation i don't know if anything you wanted to add to that james yeah so strictly speaking the way that that, that it seems like uh, beetle is trying to um describe bibliolatry is that it's the worship of the bible right it's a mixture of bible and idolatry and so um he concludes that he doesn't even know that 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 that's actually possible okay um but uh, basically what he's saying is that it's a it's a boogeyman because it's used as a, a way to scare anybody in a conversation who wants to talk about the Bible. If you uh, if you say, oh, well, you're just engaging in bibliolatry, then what that's doing is it's shutting down the conversation to any engagement really with Scripture, um, because um if if uh, if someone calls you uh, for being you know, a bibliolatrist or whatever, then uh, then then what they're saying is you have a dysfunctional understanding of scripture and therefore I can't engage with you. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not about that topic matter. Um, and that's my experience of a lot of evangelicals, especially folks who've come into the Episcopal Church um, from whatever branch of american evangelicalism um that they just they grew up in a tradition that viewed scripture only from the literal perspective um which like strictly speaking i don't know how anybody can view scripture only from the literal perspective because when jesus gives the parable of the good samaritan he's not talking about a particular thing that actually happened he's he's telling you a story to convey a message um, that's what the parables are. The parables are not true stories that actually happen, but are stories that are meant to convey a message. 
A um, couple of things I wanted to say on that, James, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. So um, that's also another, you know, popular thing to say that to, to, to mark you out as a more sophisticated Christian. I don't read the Bible uh, literally, but I think that we have to ask kind of the more critical question. What do we mean by when we say literal? Right. Um, there's been some fantastic commentary on this. Um, basically, uh, I was listening to a, an episode from the podcast on script. Ian Proven, is that his name? You know him. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. so he, yeah. he didn't, he did an episode on, on a book. He, he was a guest on that. I'll put a link to the show notes. He was a guest on this episode of On Script, and he was talking about his book called, his book was actually about the reformers and the interpreting of scripture. His hmm. book was called The Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture. And I remember listening to his interview, and basically he's talking about in the book, he's kind of asking that critical question, what do we mean by reading the Bible literally? Um, he Because he would make the case that, um, yeah, Jesus tells parables, but if we're we need we do need to read that literally in the sense that we literally need to understand that Jesus at a moment in time sat down with his disciples and told this fictional story. He literally right. told this fictional story to illustrate a true message. Um, and I remember he, and that's, that would just be an example of the line of argument he would have. Um, and I think that's what the reformers meant by reading the scripture, uh, literally the census literalis, yeah. I think in, in Latin. And, um, there, I remember there was a, there was, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but in that episode, Ian said, or Dr. Proven said, and he pronounced his name Proven, P-R-O-V-A-N. I think it's Proven, but I'm, Proven. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. Dr. Dr. Proven, um. He said, when Jesus says, I, I, I am the door, um, that's literal because it's literal because he's, he's, he's saying he's not a wooden door or he's not a actual door, but he's, he's saying he functions like that of the door. He is the way to eternal life. So right. literal, I mean, it, it comes down to what we mean by, by the word literally. And then of course, then we get in into the and this is <laughs> I'm, I'm referencing all this stuff garwood anderson wrote a living church article <laughs> have you read that one no uh, uh garwood anderson wrote um he's a biblical scholar dean at neshota house he wrote an article for living church he did a series called things episcopalians say and he eh, and he I'm tackles sure he tackles some I, i'm sorry james we haven't even gotten to your article yet and it's 406 it's fine how much time That's do fine. you have <laughs> Uh, I can probably, uh, I can probably hang out until about, um, four thirty, four forty-five. your time. Okay. Um, he met Garwin Anderson made the argument, um, that, uh, basically the same thing. I'll put a link to the show notes, um, just because we got to keep moving here. Um, so, uh, anyways, on bibliolatry, um, I wanted to take a quote from, from, uh, Reverend Beadle's article, he said, the common trope that, quote, the church gave us the Bible, unquote, is as irrelevant as it is irreverent. Scripture's chronological authorship, the timeline of its compilation, and the host of other historical observations of its writings contribute nothing to its meaning qua scripture. Scripture qua scripture is God's revelatory word to us for him, of him, creation and salvation. 
claiming that the church is the origin of scriptures of the same cloth, which claims like the Bible is a story of humans making sense of their divine experience. The opposite is true. Unquote. Um, I like that because I've heard, I've kind of heard that argument both from Catholic apologetics against types of Christians that would hold the sola scriptura. Um, right. I've heard it argued by some Anglo Catholics against Anglicans like us who hold yeah. to so, so they say, well, well, it's like the church gave you the Bible. So um, therefore the church, I guess what they're implying there is that um, what are they implying? Cause it sounds to me like they're implying that the church is more in a way more important than the Bible and is maybe God's more primary instrument than the Bible. Right. I don't know. What are they implying by that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, um, I think it's probably a, it's, it's probably a difference in understanding, a difference in epistemology um, for Anglo-Catholics and for, quote, consular Christians. Um, the, the temptation is always to put the church first um, because the church is the source of your authority. Um, and I think that that's deeply troubling um, because... The church, it, it, I had someone argue with me about this the other day in my Bible study, actually. Um, and I probably cut my own legs out from under me a little bit more than I should have. But I, I, I said, this can sometimes become a chicken and egg type argument. Um, but what it amounts to is the Bible was recognized and understood to be authoritative. The books of the Bible, the books that we know today to comprise the Bible were understood and read as authoritative before the church recognized a full canon, right? So these books, which self-attest to be inspired by God, are, they, 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 they have an authority that is not given to them by the church, but is simply recognized by the church. So out of necessity, scripture came first. Right. And I think that's what, I think that's what Reverend Beadle is trying yeah, to get he's at. He's definitely speaking to the divine origin. Um, right. And, and because it's a, it's divine origin, it's, it was the church task of, of having that as their, as their primary norm. Right. Um, and soul norm, I guess we we'll go by soul scripture. But um, and and like you said, to uh, is the church task considerate of its divine origin and to make that clear by by assembling the list of them and, and having those certain writings as opposed to others read aloud in their worship and in the life right. of the church. Um, yeah, it's a good article. Um, I'll put um, another thing he says, um, I like this quote, the more of scripture, the more a of scripture can be seen in its ability to address all people at all times. Scripture's words extend beyond their historical settings and find a new setting wherever they are read and heard in the spirit. In Christ, all places are made scripture's setting and all people are made scripture's uh, hearers, unquote. Um, and, and really that's, that's something so many of our you know, modern-minded critical biblical scholarship would uh, take issue with, uh, right. <laughs> but 
but it's it's so true that the scripture has uh, an inherent power within it um, to and and the recipient and we as readers and hearers of it uh, have a total passive function. We're recipients, right? Yeah, and it is the scripture which shapes us rather right. than the other way around. We said before right. the podcast how much um, I think bad interpretation bad hermeneutics bad preaching comes from trying to mine the scripture for some type of nugget of wisdom right you know and also when when i was speaking to the preaching earlier when i was talking about how do you go about writing your sermon i feel a little bit behind on mine what i'm saying is that and then i may i talked about how modern anglicanism sermon has been relegated and the importance of sermon has to be the importance of it has to be recovered i fully stand by that what i'm not saying by that because i'd be convicting myself right now is that you need to spend you know 20 of your 40 hour when most ministers work more than 40 you need to spend half of your time of the week in sermon prep and that you have to do exegesis from the original uh language um, you know, it, it, if you turn it into works righteousness, or if you turn it into, you know, very modern notions of what it means to be productive, that's not what I'm saying we, we need to do. I'm not saying all you ministers and preachers out there, you better start writing better sermons. I don't want to be heard as saying that. What, what I do want to be heard to say, having a recovery of, of how important the sermon is, and maybe that's more of a question of intent than working than than right work um uh you know it's it can be a intimidating thing to 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 write a story sometimes i mean some weeks it comes very naturally i guess to me yeah others not so and um something sometimes things click right away other times not so sometimes right. it's like wow this is the perfect way Thing I can say along with that, that illustrates something other times not so so um but also with the scripture being having such a, having its active voice by virtue of being inspired right let that be a comfort the spirit inspires those who humble themselves before the spirit and its word right yeah and I mean I, th- I think you know it was Luther, right, that said, let the scriptures speak for themselves. Um, right. God's word is going, God's word is dynamic. It's going to proclaim itself. Um, and and much of the duty of the preacher is to simply convey the message that scripture is conveying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I know a lot of folks who have something in mind that they want to say on a Sunday and then pick a scripture verse that pertains to whatever they want to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that uh, like, like folks who are not an electionary based denomination, but like sort of fly by the seat of their pants week by week. And that, that is the opposite where you are conveying what you want to convey and you're twisting scripture's arm to try and agree with you. And more often than not, when people do that, scripture actually doesn't agree with them. Um, it's, uh, 
it's the trouble of ripping things out of context. Um, well, and you're also trying to domesticate manufacture um, it, uh, something. I mean, this, 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 this spirit does what it's, what it wills and it, and it uh, acts on its own accord. <laughs> right. That's, that's not a, I, the picture know. that came to mind when you said that was of Uzziah um, or Uzzah. Uh, the one who, when they were walking with the Ark of the Covenant, mm. the people carrying it tripped and he grabbed it and died. <laughs> right. Like, we 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 have to be careful to convey the truth of what God desires because God's God's holiness, God's beauty, God's perfection are things that we can't co-opt for our own purposes, lest we find ourselves burned. Mm. Um, so um let's move on to your article now that we have like five minutes left i'm just kidding no we got plenty of time (laughs) um so how did this come up so you recently wrote an article for the 39 blog that comes out of efac usa right and it's titled if anglican is everything it's nothing right and uh and i'm sure this article has had to you've had to get gotten some negative feedback. I mean, you, you, you mean a bit provocative in it. Um, uh, we're going to, we're going to break it down a little bit. Um, but what, so first off, what led to this relationship with, I know you and I've talked to Zach on here, but, um, kind of tell us about what's your gig now. I mean, you're with EFAC USA writing. Yeah. So, so to start at the beginning, this article has been percolating in my brain for probably the last couple of years um, since I sort of made my turn away from um, Anglo-Catholicism. And um, it's, so you it's used been, to be an Anglo-Catholic. You never. Dr- I, I used to consider myself to be an Anglo-Catholic. Yeah, exactly. but, I knew that about you, but you just dropped that little biographical bit just now. Oh yeah, our well, listeners uh, don't know. <laughs> Give yeah, us uh, as painful as it may be, please recount that experience. <laughs> <laughs> mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I used to consider myself to be an Anglo Catholic, um, but I uh, I think I never could get away from my evangelical roots. Um, I was raised an evangelical Episcopalian. I've said that before on the podcast. Um, but I was allured by Anglo-Catholicism in, in college and seminary. Um, and then I realized that Anglo-Catholicism is not really consonant with, um, with sort of the origin of Anglicanism. It's not consonant with Anglican theology. It's not consonant with um reformation theology i mean i i am utterly given over to the belief in justification by faith alone um and to believe like an anglo-catholic especially like a lot of anglo-catholics today who are basically roman catholic light um is to believe in infused righteousness and i can't get on board with that that is the ditch i will willingly die in with a smile on my face um (laughs) So I, I began to to, my, to do my own investigating and um, realized that 
the perspective of Anglicanism that I learned in seminary and the perspective of Anglicanism that existed that, that has existed for much of my life is that Anglicanism is a spectrum between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, that we we are a kind of third way. And this is something that, like what uh, the author of the Bibliolatry article was saying, is, is alluring and attractive to people who are raised as evangelicals because they think of Protestantism as the evangelical Amer American evangelicalism that they grew up in. And they think of Roman Catholicism as a bridge too far. And so where's the place where they can settle? Oh, Anglicanism, that's what this is. Mm -hmm. um, and they're attracted by liturgy and they're attracted by um, the fact that we bother to read scripture in church. You know, um, so the trouble is that that spectrum is something that has never really, what was not really understood to be part of Anglican identity until very recently in Anglican history. Right. With the Oxford movement in the, in the, the 1900s, uh, or not, excuse me, the 1800s, the 19th century is what I mean. Um, John Henry Newman, who became John Henry Cardinal Newman when he left for Rome, because he realized the inconsistency of his beliefs as an Anglican and realized that really what he was doing was believing like a Roman Catholic was believing. And so showed integrity and left and joined the Roman Catholic church. Um, what Newman and Pusey and others um, were doing was they were saying Anglicanism gave up too much in the Reformation. They wanted to retrieve some things that Anglicanism had given up. Mm -hmm. And the trouble is that the things, some of the things that ended up being retrieved were things that were given up for a very particular reason. Um, I mean, Anglican Catholicism is not like a, a, a papist tradition in the sense that like they adhere to papal supremacy. But Anglo-Catholicism shares a lot of beliefs with Roman Catholicism that, for one, I mean, infused righteousness is a pretty clear part of this Anglo-Catholic understanding of the human being. Mm -hmm. And a high anthropology is part of an Anglo-Catholic understanding of a human being. Um, that, that we have potential to get better. Um, mm -hmm. And... Yeah. Say well, I'll say I've always... Um... To this day, um, you know, there's been a lot of ecumenical dialogues, some for better, some for worse. Um, I think kind of the latter part of the 20th century was characterized by some, some pretty robust theological dialogues. Um, and, and one of the things I, I know, like the Lutherans and Catholics, um, I'm not going to even speak to the Anglican Roman Catholic diet, the ARCIC, -A because I think that the Anglicans that served on that did not really represent. <laughs> right. right. It represented the types of, you know, later occurrences, so-called Anglicans used for it. Um, the Lutherans and Catholics really, really, they, they strived really hard to, to seriously not dismiss the differences, to take them into account, but also to see that language and cate categorical language of infusion and imputation, um, as heightened as they were 
perhaps in the 16th century. Right. Is there some common ground though? Like when we talk about it now, I mean, it's, um, I don't, you know, I don't think that you would believe either, but the Roman Catholics are not, are not, they don't have a Pelagian view of grace and salvation. Um, and in many ways, saying I'm trying to be devil's advocate. I'm sorry, but I'm, I do want to have, you know, I do want to pick your brain. You know, Roman Catholics, especially modern Roman Catholics, their view of grace is not that it is something we're ultimately earned by us, but, but, but by Christ and his work. And, and St. Augustine had very similar views about the infusion part. It, um, I guess what it is, um, I think the abuse that the reform, that the abuse of it especially came in the Middle Ages when the church had a very exploitative penitential system and a sacramental system that basically met you at every stage of your life in order to keep you in a state of grace. It right. seemed like, um, you know, once you were in a state of grace, which you could not get yourself into, even though people like Occam and Scotus would say you could. Mm -hmm. uh, but once, but the official church line of thinking, though, was that once you were in a state of grace, uh, it was based on your cooperation with God's will in order to stay there. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that I have issues with that. Oh, yeah. Uh, big issues with that because I think um, that easily leads to a type of semi-plagianism. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm with you. I just wonder, I don't know. I don't, the whole infused, infused versus imputation. I know there's some substantive difference there, mm -hmm. but um, I just, I know it, it seems though that there's at least a common underlying theme of grace saving great, you know, us being objects of grace right rather than fending for ourselves i don't know what do you think of yeah that? no i mean i th i think i think that it's it's important to not make a caricature sure, of, sure. of the roman catholic position i i couldn't agree more and so they i think they would even if they wouldn't put it quite like this they do believe in a kind of prevenient grace that god's mm -hmm. god's grace is what gives i think even faith faith is a gift in in roman catholic theology i would think um i would say mm -hmm. and so um the the issue that i have is the very same issue that you have which is the requirement of cooperation that if we are required to do all that is within us if i carry quad in say est then for for the 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 righteous the righteousness to actually take effect right if god takes us a part of the way and we have to do the rest well our part is always going to remain undone mm -hmm. and that's always going to lead to despair and really if that's the system and understanding by which we talk about salvation and and righteousness then we're all doomed to hell. I had a professor through ILT who, who gave a good analogy of it, said, it's, imagine like a a puzzle, like a thousand piece puzzle. Yeah. It's a puzzle of like a beautiful, famous piece of artwork or something. And salvation is 999 pieces of that are taken care of for you by Christ. Mm -hmm. Um. 
but that one piece, you know, that just that willpower, that, that will that you have to consent to Christ, you know, where you need to ask Jesus into your heart and you need to make a decision for him, all that stuff. We, mm-hmm. that's that one piece missing, you know, that's all you got. It's just one piece. And Jesus did the 99%. Right. But right. the thing is, it's like, how do you, we know you can even do that one piece. Right. The, the scripture and the theology of our church is very clear that um, we don't have that power. Um, right. so, so it just leads to a kind of a self-doubt, which was what happened in medieval Christianity. There was no right. assurance of salvation. Right. That's why you had the exploitative penitential system that people could take advantage of others. You had um, the concept of purgatory. So, you know, I'm with you there. And and to get to get on that same point, that's what Luther argues with um, argues with uh, Erasmus about and in the bondage of the will. Luther says that grace is pretty cheap if you only have to have functionally that one little piece. Right. right? If you if you if you only have to add just a little bit, then you have cheapened the gift. But mm-hmm. if the gift is free, then it is the most costly gift that's ever been given because mm-hmm. it's purchased not by your blood but by Christ's. Amen. And you so, yeah, no, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. So, so, <laughs> I like so yeah, that's that's. I didn't mean to cut you off. I... No, no, no. That's fine. I mean, but obviously I'm fired up about this because that that really is what is deeply troubling to me about this supposed retrieval of of um, of medieval Catholicism or what, what what folks tend to like to say is that it's a retrieval of of the fathers. Um, right. But as uh, Reverend Beetle said in his article. There were a couple of really strong reformational kind of quotations from the fathers that he quoted in that article. Yeah, and it's yeah, because yeah. our contention as Protestants is that the medieval Roman Church got the fathers wrong, right? And and that we we are simply continuing what the fathers understood, which is that we are following the Word of God in Scripture. Um. Well, and if you go to Luther and if you go to the the um, Melanchthon, the founders, the, the framers of the formula of Concord, they're, they're constantly citing the fathers. Cramner, who is constantly citing um, the fathers, um, kind of to drop a little biographical piece of mine. Um, for about a year and a half-ish, I considered myself an Anglo-Catholic uh, it was kind of like the year leading up to seminary and then a sh- for a short time while I was in until I read some Luther and woke up and not in the woke, <laughs> way. not in the woke way, but the, <laughs> sure. I woke up. Anyways, you're awakened to the truth. I was waking to the truth. Well, yeah, I did, yeah this is the letter of to Galatians, Luther's commentary on that. Um, but no, uh, for about a year and a half, because I was really enamored with, um, I was kind of attracted intellectually to, I didn't really, really read the Tractarians, but it was Charles Gore is mm-hmm. who I was really drawn to. For some reason, I, I read, read some of his biblical excerpts from his biblical commentaries, and just some stuff about what he was about. And, um, you know, but I see like there is this definitely an allure of um, Anglo-Catholicism. It's the aesthetic piece. I think people are really 
attracted to the pageantry. Um, perhaps people that come from the, you know, American evangelicalism that they, they discover that there was an early church, that there's actually a history to the church and there that right. there's these wonderful writings from the church fathers and, and stuff. And, and they don't really know that history of the reformers and how the reformers were, were also very much in tune with the, the church father. They don't have any of that, but they discover that there's a broader history and tradition of the church. And so they um, either go Roman Catholic or, or, you know, you have, or people within the Episcopal church who um, f- kind of, I was going to say fall under the spell, but, you know, are drawn to Anglo-Catholicism because they also don't really know the reformers. Uh, well, you know, right. Um, it's, it seems like uh, whether for intellectual reasons or aesthetic reasons, or because you love pageantry or the ritual, um, it, it just seems like, you know, there's, there's at first you can kind of see the draw but then once once you're kind of in it, it's like I. It all seemed to be for me. I I could never I I cannot relate to that type of worship and ethos now, right? Because I don't hear good news anywhere. I don't audibly hear good news to my ears about what Jesus has done for me, right? And um, everything with with such the emphasis on ritual it's like, oh, this is supposed to be specialty, but, but it's like, but I want to know what it means. And then you, you dig into it and you find out the reason why we, uh, someone bows three times when they, after they say this, or they fold their hands when they do this is, uh, well, there's actually five different reasons that they could, they do that. And it's all kind of like, kind of just contrived, made up, you know, um you, yes. you know it's just like um it, it it seems um i just don't see um you know <laughs> maybe i'm being kind of nasty there but you know i just don't so just the ritualism i don't um right. quite understand um i get i i think there's wonderful symbolic things to our liturgy i think that there are um there's great typological um typology all over the scripture and i mean it's like i'm not like against this idea that that things have uh, a deeper dimension that you know sometimes we see the tip of the iceberg but there's so much more underneath like there's a beauty in that um but i just feel like when it's all kind of just um kind of just made up and kind of pieced together hodgepodge because it's under this notion of oh it's old or right. that's uh, supposedly that's how the you know uh, yeah <laughs> sorry i'll get off my that's, that's the favorite but that's the favorite adjective of of um anglicanism today is ancient right mm-hmm. everything has to be ancient um but there are ancient heresies too so like ancient is not inherently <laughs> ancient good. doesn't mean good yeah <laughs> um, um yeah so, so like the 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 whole point of, of why I wrote the article is because the Episcopal Church likes to talk about itself as a big tent. Um, it mm-hmm. likes to talk about itself as being a place where everybody can gather and all viewpoints can be valued. And outside of that being an absolute lie, mm-hmm. it doesn't even make sense if it were true. Because 
as a denomination, if we hold multiple conflicting viewpoints about central parts of our theology, like if there is a camp that believes in justification by faith alone, or as the articles call it, justification by faith only, and then there's a camp that believes that you are justified by a mixture of God's grace and your works, mm -hmm. or even worse, full-on Pelagianism, which exists in the Episcopal Church as well, those things cannot be held in tension because one has to be declared right and the other wrong. And ultimately, Scripture declares univocally that you are justified by, by grace through faith. Mm -hmm. um, there is no real way by which you can earn God's grace. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot contribute to your salvation. It is a work of God on your behalf. It's a gift given to you by God's grace. Um, and so, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to go back to your, I mean, I appreciate you kind of returning to the article there. Um, kind of on this, you know, that the Anglicanism can't really be a big tent for these different things. So what is... That for these different viewpoints, what is the viewpoint? What is the Anglican view, and why would you argue it to be? Why would you argue it to be the Anglican view? What is Anglicanism? So I think Anglicanism is best described by the traditional formularies. So the thirty-nine Articles of Religion, the Book of Common Prayer, sixteen sixty-two, the Ordinal, and uh, the Books of Homilies. Those are the things that describe the Anglican theology. Um, and, and so the 39 articles, like the small called articles or, or the other myriad articles that Luther wrote, <laughs> mm -hmm. are, are not essays, but are statements of faith, theses about the, the church and what we believe. And so the 39 articles speak of our Catholicity, mm -hmm. that we believe in the Trinity, um, that we adhere to the creeds, but it also recognizes that the church can err. And when it does, scripture is the final authority. And so we as Anglicans, like Lutherans, and ultimately most of the Reformed, the other Reformed folks, um, believe in sola scriptura that scripture is the final authority on uh, on doctrine and on what we believe and why we believe it. And I know um, you would get, you would probably get a lot of pushback um, on that from other Anglicans. They'd be like, what do you mean we're sold to scripture? That's a Protestant thing, or that's certain Protestants like Lutherans or Reform, but it's not Anglicanism. They, they would use a term, I think they call it prima scriptura, the scripture or scripture has is the primary norm uh, but the thing is that's a distinction without a difference <laughs> it's a distinction without a difference and it's actually it's it's kind of like a lot of ritual it's it's made up prima scripture is not actually saying anything different from sola because they would say well there are other authorities there's secondary authorities but if that if, if whatever secondary authorities if they go against the spirit of scripture, then it's, you know, repugnant to the word of God. And therefore we should not um, obey it, but go with scripture. But that's right. actually what sola scriptura says. Right. 
So they they it's like there's a misunderstanding of what sola scriptura even is. And I'm just going to kind of throw out some articles there. Uh, now, sola scriptura is not, we talked about the formularies. James did saying, if you want to define what Anglicanism is, look to the formularies, which are the prayer book, book of homilies, ordinary or ordinal and um, the 39 articles, which are of our, you know, I'll throw out some articles that while the term sola scriptura is explicitly not there. Um, Article 6 of the sufficiency of Holy Scripture for salvation says Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. Again, that's the essence of sola scriptura. Right. Uh, Another article is, uh, I'm going way up here to the authority of the church, Article 20. It is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Again, that is the essence of sola scriptura. Right. Um, uh, Article 21, this will be the last one. We'll get back to you, James. Um, um, Thing wherefore, the last sentence of Article 21, wherefore things ordained by councils as necessary for salvation have neither strength nor authority unless it may de- be declared they that they be taken out of holy scripture this is all sola scriptura these are these are very um very succinct articulations of what sola scriptura is right and, and so like you know I'm, I'm foreseeing an argument that someone might make uh, that okay well what about the civil articles the ones that pertain to um, your relationship to civil authorities some of those are translatable to the american context where we don't have a king some of them aren't the ones that are great the ones that aren't that's not that big of a deal because they're not necessarily points of theology right they're they're means by which we relate to the civil government and mm-hmm. since we're not english some of those don't pertain to our context, mm-hmm. but, uh, but like, so, so, so one of the things that I quote in the article is Dermot McCulloch, brilliant church historian, um, talks about how Cranmer would be appalled by the idea that Anglicanism was a spectrum between, um, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Because... Can I read that? Can I read that quote real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, and, and James quotes in his article from Dearman McCulloch. Dear McCulloch writes, Cramner would violently have rejected such a notion. How could one have a middle way between truth and Antichrist? The middle ground which he sought was the same as Bootser's, an agreement between Wittenberg and Zurich, which would provide a united vision of Christian doctrine against the counterfeit being refurbished at the Council of Trent. For him, Catholicism was to be found in the scattered churches of the Reformation. And it was his aim to show forth their unity to prove their Catholicity, unquote. Yeah. So, so McCulloch is trying to get the, the point across here that, that Anglicanism is not, as I said at the outset of the article, it's not a liturgical designator. It's a theological designator. We are not Anglican because we have a liturgy. We're not the only denomination. And, and I've heard Anglicans define themselves by like, our theology is our, is our liturgy. So right. actually, and the, the irony though, is that the, the liturgy has theology. And if you read that theology, um, 
it is very reformational. Right. Even the bits that have, and I know there were at least the broad, at least the 1662 prayer book. Um, and even if you get in, especially you see a lot in right one in our current prayer book, because that's right. based on the old Cramnerian language reformational, but even right two, those, those beat those that has survived in there, even though, you know, there might be other currents at play, but it's still right. You know, so. And so basically what I, what I do throughout the articles, I sort of trace Anglican theological progression. And um, one, one comment that I got um, is that I sort of discount um, Anglican theological development and my response to that is I don't discount. I just think that there are some things that are licit and others that are illicit. Um, and Anglicanism from the very outset understood itself to be a Protestant body that was in line with, uh, it, it was, it was, um, really functioning between Zurich or Geneva and Wittenberg. Um, we we are a spectrum that that can encompass people who are closer to Luther, like you and me, and it can encompass people who are closer to Calvin or closer to Zwingli. Probably a little bit more towards Calvin's end than Zwingli's end, um, but but that's the that's the ground that we that that we walk on. That's the area that we we you know inhabit mm -hmm. um rome is in the rear view it always has been rome is not um it's not the the other end of the spectrum it's not something with which we can flirt because we have given up some of the things that medieval and modern roman catholicism hold dear because we believe that they are not in line with god's word and scripture so um, at the end of the article, I talk about um, the fact that we, we believe that we are saved by grace through faith, that we have been predestined by God and called and justified and glorified, as Paul says in Romans 8, that, uh, that we believe that, that Christ died for us who are the ungodly. All of this language is straight out of Scripture. And that uh, God saves us in spite of all that we do. And um, one of my favorite verses from scripture comes from Isaiah 43, that we believe as a people who, uh, as an Anglican denomination that, that, that confessionally believes in predestination, that an election, that God has called us by name and says, you are mine. And that's the, the um, predestination in the biblical sense, I think. Right. Have a caveat here is that uh, at least as at least as far as you and I understand it, um, article what article is is seventeen seventeen uh, affirms uh, predestination in the sense that um, Paul uses it and in the sense that Luther would have used it um, not right. not to the extent that Calvin did, which was right. a, kind of a logical outworking that looks at predestination not as a, in the sense of a promise 
God has called you. You've been washed in the waters of baptism. You are saved. You're predestined for glory. No, it's um, Calvin saw, well, some are, and that, that the implication of that is that there's some that may not be, and then that's uh, brings in the anxiety around what's called yeah. double predestination. And it's far, and I know some Anglicans would argue that that article can be interpreted that way, but from what I understand, including from my book, believe uh you know gerald bray and a lot of the anglican scholars that are really um big expositors of the 39 articles would right. say that it's more in the singular sense predestination. oh absolutely i mean it says it's the first three words are predestination to life <laughs> right right it's you know it, uh, when i think about destinations to life or death it just says right when, when i think about double predestination i think about um when my uh, my youth leader's husband, when I was in high school, um, took me out crabbing one day. And we caught a bunch of crabs and we put them all in a basket and we sorted them. The ones that we couldn't keep, we threw back in the water. The ones that we could keep, we left in the basket. That's a kind of double predestination where God says, OK, I'm getting rid of you. I don't <laughs> like you. You're going bye bye. Uh, but I'll keep y'all. So double predestination and election, that is one way that I think about it. And I don't think that that's consonant with God's character. I don't think that's the way that God works. But more importantly, the biblical understanding of predestination only allows us to go so far as single predestination. To dig into double predestination is to dig into the hidden God. And then we're in territory where we don't want to be. Mm -hmm. We want to be with the God who has preached, the God who has revealed we don't want to dig into the hidden God because that's where we see God uh, as he truly is. And that's, <laughs> that's not necessarily what we want. We want God as he is revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Right. Um, right. And of course, that's the, um, for listeners that are may not up be as familiar with uh, that distinction of the revealed and the hidden God, uh, that doesn't speak of two gods. It doesn't mean a schizophrenic God. It doesn't mean a God of two personalities, but Luther had, um, I would recommend going to, Luther, and I wish I knew the specific volumes of Luther's works or the specific writings. Um, uh, partly, I can definitely tell you his commentary in Galatians, or sorry, Galatians, Genesis, which right, talks right. about that distinction. Um, um, yeah, so that's, uh, but anyways, um, cool. And, and yeah, I, I'm, I hear you. I think uh, the article was overall well written. Um, I think it made a good case. It, um that and, and i get the well for it made a good case i'll finish that thought it made a good case for the anglican anglicanism as being defined by its reformational heritage uh, as opposed to later developments like anglo-catholicism like the influence of the great awakening type of theology which we right. didn't really get into um but um and i get the critique of like well isn't there validity to these other expressions of anglicanism um, you know, I, I understand it to a point um, because at some point it's like, you know, the term Anglican wasn't even around when the when the Anglicanism as established as we claim was established. The term right. wasn't around. So it's like there's maybe fluidity of terminology there. Um, and can a, can a constituted church body uh, decide to overrule what it believed before or, or to to 
to hold its articles as an important, you know, development in the past, but not a current uh, thing to subscribe to. I mean, those are all questions worthy of asking, but I'm with you in the sense that, okay, once you, the, the 39 articles are not, as I read them, they're not, there's not, they're not really a rigid, it's not doctor, it's not a rigid doctrinaire statement of confining us to certain beliefs and not others. I don't think it should be read that way. It doesn't read that, read it to me that way. It, it sounds yeah. to me an exposition of, of, of the biblical faith. Right. And, um, and so, you know, that's, and I think if Anglicanism needs to any Christian body, any Christian needs to hold by the biblical faith. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, cool. Thanks James for giving your time today. Um, good episode and, um, We'll look forward to re. I think we have a couple episodes coming up in April. Um, you know, I always like to say who we got coming on, and then it's like I jinx it because whenever I say that, the person something comes up, and we have to reschedule. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but no, we are doing an episode next April with. Remind me, you and I do. Oh, it's uh, coming. Uh, yes, Father Mills from okay yeah. he wrote an article on scripture for living church j mills right 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 and yeah. uh that's coming up in april so uh and that should be a fascinating discussion um he is a uh, lot james and i read his article from living church and thought we had a lot in in common with him um on you know trusting in the reliability uh of scripture including the historical reliability of the things that scripture tells us of so that'll be a good episode yeah look forward to it so well james i'll i know you got things to do and so uh god bless and um we'll talk soon sounds good